Good morning. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, have you ever been really thirsty? Like, really thirsty. You're on a long hike without water. Maybe it was an extremely hot day. I remember when we went on a mission trip to uh, Haiti, it was hot everywhere. Uh, there was no air conditioning, no power, no electricity where we were. And it didn't matter what time of the day it was, you were just hot. And in the mornings, we would do these work projects. And I just remember, no matter how much water I drank, I was still thirsty. As a teen, I loved to play sports. And, and uh, I would play hockey for hours almost every day with kids in the neighborhood. Back, it was a little more safer to be out. And uh, one day, I was, I'd been playing for about two hours. I hadn't taken a drink. I was super thirsty. I ran inside. And I opened the fridge, and there before me was this beautiful pitcher of grape Kool-Aid. And I was so excited. And I poured myself a big glass, and I started drinking furiously, only to find out that my uncle from Germany was in town. And in Germany, what they liked to do was make the coffee and then put it in the fridge for cold brew. And I was expecting refreshing grape Kool-Aid, and instead I got cold coffee. And by the way, I hate all forms of coffee. I'm one of those weird people. I don't like the smell of coffee. I don't like the taste of coffee. I don't like the look of coffee. I think it, I don't know. There's just something about coffee and maybe it, maybe it stems back to that moment. But I thought I was going to get a very refreshing beverage and I got something instead. There are different times, different things that make us thirsty. Um, as many of you know, I can't eat gluten, but I do have a special pill that if I take that pill, 45 minutes later, I have a 30-minute window where I can eat gluten. But I can only take the pill like every once in a while. I can't do it all the time. But one of the things the pill does is it makes me parched. No matter what, I, how much I drink, I feel like I, I'm still dehydrated. It's a weird thing that it does. And so when we're thirsty, uh, we do a number of different things. You know, we, we all know, I mean, a lot of us in America know different things that we should do when we're thirsty, one of the things we, we know that we probably shouldn't do is we, we grab a pop. And uh, this particular one is a Sprite, so it has, it's, it has no caffeine. This really has no value whatsoever. Um, this doesn't do anything for you other than it tastes good, right? You know, I remember when I stopped drinking pop uh, for a season, every time a Coca-Cola commercial came on, man, I just, my mouth started watering. So, but... Really, we all know this is bad for us. It, it doesn't do anything good for us. But there's, but there's other uh, things in our life that, that do have some benefit sometime. You know, maybe, maybe you grab an energy drink. Now, we know that those aren't good for you. But, you know, when I was in seminary, there were times where I had an assignment due the next day. And I knew I had to pull an all-nighter. And those times these types of drinks became something that were really helpful. Maybe you have to drive 12 hours in one day. I know when I'm driving on a long trip, sometimes I'll pound the caffeine to make sure I don't fall asleep when I'm driving my kids. There are other drinks that are good at certain seasons. You know, Gatorade, if you're playing soccer or football or something, is really good for you because it has electrolytes and it, and it replenishes you. But the doctors and stuff say, if you're just sitting around the house watching football, this isn't the best drink, you know? It's 
full of sugar. It's, it's not good for you. If you're playing football, good drink, good at times. But if you're just sitting around the house, not good. And then other drinks that, that really are always good for you. Water is, is always good. It's, it's a, a good thing. It's the, the best drink. But no matter how much water you drink or Gatorade you drink or Monster you drink or Sprite you drink, eventually you will thirst again. Even if you drink the best stuff, the thing that is the best for you, you will still have to eventually drink. And Jesus says something about being thirsty. Uh, turn in your Bibles to John 7, and we're just going to read through 11 verses today, and then we'll go uh, verse by verse. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from them, from within them, sorry. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his word, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Let's pray. God, so many of us here today are thirsty. We have spent our lives searching for satisfaction, searching for something to fulfill us, searching for fulfillment. And yet you offer it freely. Lord, we pray that as we open your word, we'll look to you as the true source of fulfillment, as the true source of satisfaction, as the only one that can satisfy our deepest longings. pray that you'll speak to your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage begins on the last and greatest day of the festival. Now, we have to give you context. This is the the Feast of Booze or Feast of Tabernacles or also called Sukkot. This is the seventh and the last festival of the year. If you look at this picture, uh, there were seven festivals that they celebrated uh, in Israel. Three of them were, were journey uh, festivals where people would travel into Jerusalem. If you look at um, our timeline, this is our months. Uh, actually, today is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It typically happened uh, at the in September, October uh, time. And so we have this Feast of Tabernacle. Now, all these different events, all these different feasts, all these different festivals were meant to remind Israel of past events and foreshadow the future kingdom. Now, this particular festival, the festival of Trump or uh, of booze or tabernacle, uh, it was very significant in the history of Israel. In fact, some of the most significant moments in their history happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord during this feast. Uh, after the Israelites rebuilt the temple when it had been destroyed, uh, they gathered during the Feast of Tabernacles to celebrate under the leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel. 
Uh, the great revival during Ezra's leadership happened as they read the Word of God during this festival, and the people confessed and repented of their sins. And so this was a very important festival for the nation of Israel. Now, if you look here, we have the Feast of Trumpets, which happens just before this. So in the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, also known as Rosh Hashanah, was ten days before, or at the, at the beginning of this. And, and that was meant to be this time where the nation of Israel looked internally and said, where have we sinned? What mistakes have we made? What do we need to confess to the Lord? And on the tenth day of Rosh Hashanah, they would have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And the priest would go and he would sacrifice a bull for the sins of himself and his family. And he'd go put the blood of that bull on the altar. It was the only day that the high priest was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies of the temple. The one day. And so he'd go into the Holy Holies and, and put the blood of the bull uh, on the Ark of the Covenant. And then, then he would sacrifice, they would bring two goats into the temple. And the first one... They would sacrifice that for the sins of the nation of Israel. And they would put that blood in the Holy of Holies on the altar and sprinkle it. And then the second goat, they would, he would lay his hands on the goat. And they'd send the goat out into the wilderness. The sign of saying, God, we've asked for forgiveness. There's been the sacrifice for our sin. Now, Lord, would you send our sins far away? Kind of the idea of Psalms. Our sins are as far as the east is from the west. And so that their shame and their guilt would go away and that God would forgive them for another year till that day. So the Feast of, Trump, or the Feast of, of Tabernacles happens after this Feast of the Trumpets, after this Day of Atonement, after the solemn and meaningful day that pointed forward to Jesus, the God who would take away the sins of of the world. So five days after that day of the atonement, after they've repented of their sins, after they've experienced God's forgiveness, they would have this tremendous celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so what they would do, if you go to this picture, they would, they would construct these booths, right? Uh, these outdoor places. And, and God gave them instructions on how to do this. And really it was to remember the time that they were in the wilderness as they dwelled in tents and as they uh, God's provision during that time of, of food and of water and his taking them in to the promised land. Now, you may think, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. They all kind of make these temporary shelters. But because it is one of the pilgrimage festivals, people from all over Israel would travel to Jerusalem. In fact, if you were able, if you're physically able and you were a male... Uh, you, you had to go. It's it kind of this is something you have to do, and most of them would bring their families. So you have to imagine this picture of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of travelers to Jerusalem, and everybody is out in their booths. And and this would be a time that the kids would look forward to all year. They'd they'd pray in the booths. They'd they'd have meals in the booths. They would they would uh, do all these festivities. They would they would put lots of color and, and decorate them. And it was all to remember God's providence in the harvest, His faithfulness and protection as He had brought the Israelites from the wilderness into the promised land. And there was this sense of anticipation of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And so for seven days during this festival, it lasted seven days, they would live in those booths 
and they would eat in those booths, and they would celebrate. And it's interesting, as John begins his gospel, which is what we're reading from, John talks about who Jesus is. And you're familiar maybe with John 1, in the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now if you fast forward a little bit further down, John says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He actually uses the, the, the phrase here, tabernacled. God became flesh, Jesus, and tabernacled among us. It's this significant word that, it, that even maybe John is foreshadowing that, that this Feast of Tabernacles points to Jesus. It points to Jesus as the fulfillment of all these things. So put yourself in that place. Imagine something you look forward to all year. And friends and family from around Israel came into town. And you celebrated with them. And, and you made these temporary booze out in your backyard. Uh, and, and you all gathered. And, and maybe your family made one too right next to you. And, and every day you were, you were celebrating and having fun. And, and, and having all this religious things. Celebrating the faithfulness and provision of God. And, and the city would be a buzz with people in every corner of the city. But why do the Israelites even celebrate this festival? Let's rewind to Leviticus 23. I know that's most of your favorite books of the Bible, Leviticus. But there's a lot of really good stuff in there. So in the beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, so remember the first 10 days of that Rosh Hashanah, day 10, day of atonement, then five days later, after you've gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day is also a day of Sabbath rest. So it begins with Sabbath, ends with Sabbath. Next slide. On the first day, you were to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord, your God, for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. So take these branches, and they would uh, put palms and a couple different branches together, and they would celebrate for seven days. On the next slide, this is to be... Lasting ordinance for the generations to come, to celebrate in the seventh month, to live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So over time, as the Israelites celebrated this command from the Lord, uh, different traditions started to come from that. And so uh, from D.A. Carson, here's, here's how the festival eventually developed. Every day of the feast, a golden flagon, which is an ornamental picture, you'll have to imagine this being ornament, ornamental and golden, was filled with water <coughs> from the pool of Siloam and carried in procession, led by the high priest, back to the temple. Now, here's a picture of the Pool of Siloam, uh, current day. Uh, and this came from the, the springs of Gahan, I think it was. Yeah, the Gahan Spring. And one context that maybe you don't know <clears throat> is in that language, anything that was like a spring or river was seen as living water because it was flowing. So if you had a well or something like that, that's not living water. But springs and rivers were considered living water because they were a constant source 
of water. So the priest would travel down uh, to the pool of Siloam and dip it out. If you go to the next slide, uh, we'd see the procession. So they, they go from the temple down to here, this pool, and then they enter. The, you can see that yellow kind of thing. There's, there's a water gate uh, there. And so they would lead this procession from the water gate up. And they would lead it all the way up to the, to the inner court of the temple. And when they got to the inner court of the temple, <clears throat> someone would blow a shofar, uh, three blasts. And there would be this joyful uh, celebration. And what the people would do is they would carry uh, these and a citrus fruit as a sign of God's provision. And so as the priest came into the temple and, and went in and the shofar blew, uh, the pilgrims would travel with it. And there would be a temple choir that would sing uh, Psalm 113 to 118, the halal. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook their willow and myrtle and twigs tied with a palm in their right hand. Sorry, I had that reversed. <laughs> and the left hand raised the citrus fruit the sign of an ingathered harvest, and they'd cry, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, three times. It was this beautiful picture that God provided for them shelter and food in their history and also during the most recent harvest. Now they would do this in the morning, and they would take the priest would take the water and he'd go into the the inner court, and he would walk around the altar, and then he would go out, and they would pour out the water sacrifice <clears throat> and a drink offering of wine. And they were poured in the respective bowls and then poured out before the Lord. And so as they're thinking about God's provision, if you remember the traveling through the wilderness, the God provided water through the rock. That's the significance of the water, of why they brought that. And they're looking at the, they're, they're living in their booze and they're celebrating these different things. This pouring on the altar was meant to look forward to a, a messianic age in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow on the entire earth. So every day, for seven days, they do this. Every day, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, dip some water, go through the water gate. A procession of people would follow him. As he entered the temple, they would have the shofar blow, and everybody would yell, Give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And on the last day, the greatest day of the feast, the priest would actually walk around the altar seven times, because if you remember, when they entered the promised land, they went to Jericho and they walked around Jericho seven times and then the walls came down and they entered the promised land. And then that priest would take the water and go and pour it on the altar. Now maybe at that very moment, Jesus stands up and he's going to speak. Now this is significant because... Earlier in the chapter, we learned that there were people trying to kill him, that they had put a warrant out with the temple guards for his arrest, and yet Jesus waits for just the right moment, and he stands up in the temple and says in a loud voice, what does Jesus say? What does he use this very specific moment to say? 
Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He starts by saying anyone. This is an open call. Anyone who is thirsty. Last week we talked about anyone who is weary and burdened. All who are weary and burdened are invited. Jesus says anyone who is thirsty is invited. He's actually quoting Isaiah 55 where the Lord says, Come, all you are thirsty. Come to the waters, all you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money or cost. Jesus, in that moment, as the water had passed by, is declaring that He is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. That He is the one that this is all pointing to. That He can provide life-giving, life-fulfilling, eternally satisfying waters. But how do we even drink of that water? Jesus isn't sitting there with His own pitcher. He's just, as the pitcher goes by, or as people are reflecting on this provided water, He said, If you're thirsty, come. But how do we drink? He said this, Whoever believes in Me. Whoever believes in Me. See, in order to drink that water, we need to believe in Jesus. In this chapter, Jesus had been called a number of different things. He had been called a good man. He had been called a guy who's demon-possessed. I mean, that that kind of escalates quickly. That's That's a big difference. He had been called the deceiver. But he'd also been called the prophet and the Messiah. And so Jesus says, look, all, there's all these other things out there, but if you want to experience this life-giving water, if you want to find true satisfaction, if you want to truly be fulfilled, then you need to believe in me. And he said, whoever believes in me, what's the result? As Scripture said, has rivers of living water flow from within them. I love this passage in Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. What does Jesus offer? This fulfillment is that He will continually guide you, satisfy your needs, strengthen you. And what is the result of that life? You'll be like this well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Jesus promises to continually give you life. Are you catching this invitation? Are you putting yourself in that place every day, watching the water go by, every day shouting praise to the Lord, every day watching the priest go and pour it on the altar and remembering the significance of it, and then Jesus just stands up and says, Have you been watching all this? If you're thirsty, come. Come to me. Believe in me. I will satisfy your needs. I will strengthen you. I will guide you. It continues in verse 9. By this, the... By this, he's talking about the rivers of living water flowing within us. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Here, John does this great thing as he's writing the Gospel. He explains what Jesus is saying. He tells you this is what Jesus is talking about. Now, the gift of the Spirit is something that God is going to bring. At at Pentecost, uh, later, we're going to see the Holy Spirit come on believers. And the gift of Spirit gives us continual access to this living water. 
But it, the Spirit doesn't come until Jesus is glorified, until He's died, rose again, and, uh, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So we have this amazing promise. If we believe in Jesus and give our life to Him, He'll provide us with the Holy Spirit, a continual offer to have our needs satisfied. And that river of life is continuing to flow in us and through us. So verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. And others said he is the Messiah. In those days, uh, those are often thought of two different people. There was a prophet and there was a coming Messiah. But Jesus is actually the prophet, priest, and king. He's the coming prophet, the coming Messiah. He fulfilled all these prophecies that pointed forward to this coming king. And still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? All throughout John's Gospel, he has a lot of irony. Everybody remember where Jesus was born? Uh, My my two Afghan boys that live with us, um, when we talked about where they're from, they would say this other place other than where they lived. And I was always confused because I was like, no, I know where you're from. That's not where you're from. But in their culture, when you say where you're from, you're not talking about where you live. You're talking about where your family originated from. And uh, so, like, for us, when people ask me, where are you from? You know, I'll usually say Grand Rapids. And then sometimes when people say, well, where are you originally from? Oh, well, I'm the Detroit area. Well, what these people don't realize is that Jesus from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. He fulfilled all the promises given in the Old Testament. The coming king. You're like, oh, that's just that guy from Nazareth. That's that guy from Galilee. There's a prophet that came from Galilee, even though multiple prophets did come from Galilee. But they are missing the boat. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. As we mentioned in this chapter, Jesus was called a good man, a deceiver, a demon-possessed man, a prophet, a messiah. And there was this arrest warrant out for Jesus, but, but no one could seize him. Why? Why could no one seize him? Why could the temple guards not seize him? Well, because it's God's timing. Jesus had a plan. There was a moment that he knew was coming. In, in the fullness of time, at the very moment that it needed to happen, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But this was not that moment. This was not that time. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked him, why didn't you bring him in? Why didn't you bring him in? I love this statement. No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. They went to arrest Jesus and then they heard him talk. One commentator put it this way. They went to arrest Jesus and they were arrested by him. His words of life moved them. And they said, we, we, can't, we can't arrest this man. There's no one who's ever speak like, spoke like he, he does. He's different. They were overwhelmed by the presence of Christ and his words. So when they were confronted with who Jesus was, they weren't sure, but they knew there's something different. So today I want to ask you three questions from this text. Three questions. One, who is Jesus? All throughout this chapter, everybody who encounters Jesus, they're they're asking that question. Who is this person? 
How does he speak with such authority? He stood up and, and offered living water. They asked, who's that guy? Some people who had seen his miracle said, well, surely he must be a Messiah because there can't be anybody that's going to come along that's going to do more than what he's been doing. There's others say, well, that must not be God's power. Maybe he's demon-possessed. That's how he has power to do all these things. There was all these different opinions about who Jesus was. And in our culture, it's the same way. A lot of people in our culture like Jesus because they think, well, he's a good moral person. He, he has good moral teaching. But yet if they truly looked into the life of Jesus, they wouldn't have the choice to just say, well, he was a good man. I love uh, C.S. Lewis's argument in his book that Jesus is either the Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic. Because if he said he was God and he wasn't God, then he's, then he's a liar. If he knew he wasn't God and said he was God. If he thought he was God and he's not God, then he's crazy. He's a lunatic. So you can't say Jesus was a good teacher because if he's not Lord, then he's the only two other options is he's crazy, he's a, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. So if you look at the evidence of Scripture and look at the evidence of God's Word, the only real way you can be confronted with Jesus is you have to determine either he's crazy, he's a liar, or he truly is Lord. And if he is Lord, then that should cause us to do something. So one, who is Jesus? You need to answer that question today. You need to answer that question. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he Lord? Secondly, where do you find your satisfaction? Or to put it another way, how do you quench your thirst? In Jeremiah, God is talking to the nation of Israel. And he says, my people have committed two sins. What are the two sins? One, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And two, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What God is saying is they have two sins. First, I'm the source of life. I'm the source of living water. I'm the source of satisfaction. And they forsook me. They said, no, we're going to do our own thing. And then secondly, because they rejected God as the source of satisfaction, then they said, I need to find a different source of satisfaction. And so they started digging cisterns. And cisterns were a place to collect rainwater. And so they dug these cisterns, but they weren't even effective. They were, they were broken cisterns. They, they didn't work. And so, so God says, look, you rejected me as the source, and then you tried to figure it out on your own, and you didn't make it work. In a sense, God is saying, look, you're looking to all these other things to satisfy your thirst. We all do this. We all have things in our life that really have no benefit to us, that are bad for us, and yet we find ourselves going back to that broken system. Maybe it's anger or resentment or bitterness. And we know it's bad for us, and we know it doesn't produce good fruit, and yet we continually turn to it. Maybe it's an addiction. And we pursue it in the moment it tastes good. In the moment it fills our desires, but afterwards we're left going, why did I make that mistake again? Or maybe it's some sin that, that, that has ensnared us that we keep going back and every time we're left going, I shouldn't have done that, but we know that we keep going back to the bad thing. Maybe it's like one of these two things. Things that are in the moment good, but in other times not good. There are things in our life, like a phone. A phone is a really good thing because it allows us to keep in contact with our family, 
allows us to, to do things that are beneficial. It's easy access to information. We can check our email. I even have Logos on my phone, so that means like when I'm sitting in the doctor's, I can do sermon prep. I can just open a commentary and go through, and I, it's awesome. I can like highlight something. When I go back to my office, it's right there already highlighted. I already have my notes. It's, there's, there's a lot of great things a phone can do, but but a phone can end up being a broken cistern because what do we do? We, we get addicted to it. We're looking at it all the time. We're neglecting our relationships with others. We're neglecting our relationship with our Lord. So a phone is good at times. Other times not. Sports. You know, much like Gatorade, sports can be a, a great thing. You know, it's a place to be active. It's a place to hang out with friends. It's a, it's a, it's a place to, to uh, build relationships and have fun and, and tease each other. But it can become an obsession. It can become something that that takes away from the things God wants us to do. So there are things in our life that are always bad, and yet we keep turning to them. There are things in our life that are sometimes good that we turn to. And there are even things in our life that are good that can be broken cisterns. It's good to spend time with our family. It's good to be involved in ministry at church. It's, it's, there's lots of good things, but what happens is when they become the priority, when our life becomes about doing good things and we de- neglect the giver of good things, we find our life out of balance. We find ourselves seeking to find satisfaction through our marriage, which our spouse will always at some point let us down. Or through our kids, and our kids are always at some point let us down. Our, our work, which is a good thing, but always at some point it will leave us unsatisfied. And so the bad things, the sometimes good things, and even the good things in life will always eventually become broken cisterns. When we forsake God, the, the source of living water, and build our own systems, we'll all, cisterns will always find that we're left unsatisfied we trade what is temporary for what is eternal my favorite story in the bible and and it's probably why i quote it so much but it's worth just going back to for a moment is the samaritan woman at the well and she was there in the heat of the day so she could be alone so no one would be around her she had been married five times and divorced five times and the man she was with she wasn't married to and she had been seeking for satisfaction this whole time. And, and Jesus came to her in John 4. And he said to her, and we, we read this at the beginning, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, you've been searching for satisfaction in all these places. All these men, all these relationships, every thing you've been doing you've been trying to find fulfillment and you find yourself continually thirsty because what you're pursuing does not fulfill come to me come to me i'm the source of living water which leads me to my last question would you consider coming to jesus today see instead of going to a pop or energy drink, or Gatorade, or water. What you need is a faucet. You need to be connected to the source. So the moments when you need it, you can open up and refill with the living water that only God provides. See, last week we looked at 
the passage where Jesus says, Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we talked about how God is offering an eternal rest. When we believe in Jesus, when we give our life to Jesus, He promises this eternal rest that we can spend eternity with Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. He promises eternal rest. But we also talked last week about how God also promises available rest. Rest in the moment that you need it. Rest when you're weary. Rest when you're tired. Rest when you're frustrated. In the same way, Jesus offers living water, satisfaction, both eternally. If you believe in Him, there will be this well of water, the spring of water rising up to life to, to give you eternal life, but to flow out of you and give life to others. So Jesus is inviting you to this eternal satisfaction, but He's also inviting you to available satisfaction. Because most of you know, all these things provide momentary satisfaction for the moment but you're fine that you're going to be thirsty again the next day. And Jesus is the only one that offers eternal, available satisfaction. As the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, they were thirsty and God provided water out of the rock. And so every year they came to celebrate And they would go to the pool of Siloam and they would dip the water and they would go on procession through the city until the moment that they got into the temple and the people would shout out and praise God for what He had done. And it would all point to the fact that God is the provider of what they needed. He provided them food. He provided them water. But today I want to challenge you. God is still the provider of what we need. When we're weary and burdened, He provides rest. When we're thirsty and unsatisfied, He provides satisfaction. He is the only source of true satisfaction. See, God created us to be in a relationship with Him, and that's why we all have this longing to find satisfaction, and we long to find it in friends and our spouse and in work and in all these other things, but it's all a desire that God gave us only to be found in Him. And so today, he says, don't forsake me. Don't, don't build these broken cisterns hoping that that will satisfy. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Come to me, all who are thirsty, and I will give you satisfaction. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you're patient and long-suffering with us. So often we turn to other things to find our fulfillment. We continue to go to broken cisterns, even though we've experienced time and time again what those lead to. There's been times in our life where we've pursued things that that ultimately lead to destruction. And we know while we're in the midst of them that this is not good, this is unwise, and yet we continue to turn to them. There's times where we look to good things, spouses, work, friends, to find satisfaction. And, and Lord, we thank You for those relationships that provide joy and, and health in our lives. But oftentimes, if we, if we look at it with reality, all those people are going to fail us in some capacity at some point, and we're going to be left unsatisfied. 
Lord, help us to continue to look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before us, endured the cross, scoring its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. Lord, you died in our place so we could have life, so that we can have access to this eternal, available rest and satisfaction. Help us to find it in you. In your name we pray. Amen.